So I have a special guest to join me to explore these issues of the coronavirus pandemic that have been getting, in my view, insufficient attention, whether it's civil liberties or the extent to which we want to empower governments and private corporations with greater power to address the pandemic. And that is the NSA whistleblower, uh, the president of the Press Freedom Group, Freedom of the Press Foundation, on whose board I also sit, the president of the board of directors of that group, and the author last year of a book about surveillance called Permanent Record. Welcome to System Update, Edward Snowden. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's good to be with you, Glenn. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, if, if memory serves, I think we've talked once or <laughs> twice before, but I'm delighted to talk again. So, the reason why I decided to focus this episode on these questions of civil liberties and, and, and vesting the state with authority versus the individual liberties and civil liberties that we cherish is because I know for myself, once in a visceral way, I started appreciating how dangerous this pandemic truly was, how lethal this virus was, how easily it spreads. I found myself for the first couple of weeks kind of almost instinctively relinquishing my uh, general defense of and clinging to civil liberties and, and almost wanting the government to seize authorities that prior to this I would never have dreamed about supporting. And I realized that we are, our psyches are constructed in a way that when the first order survival need is imperiled, we're very easily manipulated or even not necessarily manipulated, but we're very easily persuaded that we ought to give up a lot of civil liberties. And it was only after a couple of weeks when that started alarming me that I start trying to calibrate for myself how those that balance should be maintained. So I'm curious, just on a kind of general level, when you have a global pandemic of this kind, what is your view about the proper balance between civil liberties and individual rights on the one hand and vesting governments with that of authorities on the other? Okay, so there was like a lot to, to get into there from that formulation. But I think when you were getting into the question, the, the most important point was there, and that you yourself, who have been, you know, for years uh, a pretty strident critic of uh, the, the spread of authoritarianism, uh, the rise of unlimited executive privileges and authorities uh, in country after country, um, even you go, hey, you know, I'm worried about this. Maybe they can uh, track the virus better if they start doing this, that, or the other. Uh, as long as we stop this thing, this crazy, inhuman thing, um, it's worth it. Uh, and even if, you know, in a moment of reflection, you catch your breath, a week goes by, three weeks go by, the headlines don't have as much sting, uh, you start to adjust to the new normal and lean back and think about it in a more considered way, on reflection, you start to go, well, you know, maybe maybe I was a little bit rash there. Uh, recognize that as somebody who has like a self-identity as a critic of governments, uh, you're still very much ahead of the curve. And this is, I think, the most teachable moment in the current pandemic, something that we so often forget whenever there is a crisis uh, in any corner of the world that begins reshaping laws and reshaping societies and, and the boundaries of our rights uh, that we live in and, and defend and uh, over time try to expand. Uh, and that is that uh, human emotion is itself viral. Um, this is one of the basic principles for internet and social media. You know, they've done studies on this and they've seen the emotions that have the largest uh, contagion are uh, anger and fear, right? And what we are seeing is we are seeing hysteria spread. And remember, uh, fear can be rational. 
Um, this is a serious problem. Uh, this virus is a serious threat uh, to public health and well-being and safety. And we should do what we can to mitigate it. But what we've seen uh, is a panic sweep across the entire world. Uh, the political class, uh, the media class, the, the sort of commentariat. Uh, and you can see it on the Internet. You know, um, there's one group of people uh, who are trying to bury uh, any suggestion that this is serious at all, uh, absolute denialism of any facts and evidence that there could be some danger to this, uh, that we should put economic limits in place, whatever. Um, and then the other side of this uh, that says this is the end of everything, we're all going to die, everybody's going to get this, and, you know, it's just uh, they kiss your relatives goodbye because you're never going to see them again. Uh, and the reality, of course, is it's, it's more complex. It's somewhere in the middle. But that moment of intense, instantly transmissible fear uh, is what happened to us in 9-11. Um, it's what happens to us in the lead-up to every war, uh, it's what happens to us uh, whenever the government is trying to start a campaign to, to gather uh, new authorities. They say, you know, we're going to protect you from uh, roving gangs. We're going to protect the children. We're going to do whatever we can. Um, and that moment, that window of vulnerability where rationality goes out of the window, um, <laughs> goes out of the room, we are, we are all susceptible to it. Uh, and that is what we are seeing now. We are only now beginning to get our feet under us. And in the time that we now take a breath and start looking at what's happened, uh, we see governments around the world in country after country uh, have already begun helping themselves to, for example, uh, the, the mass movements of everyone everywhere to the maximum extent of their capability, which they say is for tracking the spread of the virus. Um, but all of the questions that, you know, in a more considered time we would have looked at, like, one, does this work? Is it effective? And if it is effective, is it worth the cost that we're paying? And how will we make sure that this is not permanent? This is not uh, the kind of emergency measure that we got, you know, 20 years ago uh, after September 11th that never ended. Uh, the, you know, so so you, let me just stop you there for a second, if I could, on this, this comparison between the aftermath of 9-11 and, and the fear-mongering that was successfully exploited to do things like introduce the Patriot Act with almost no dissent, um, and then ultimately a 19-year war in Afghanistan, an invasion of Iraq, powers of detention without due process, creating... Uh, prisons in the middle of islands, things that had previously been unimaginable that were justified in the name of terrorism. I know the civil liberties community, including myself, spent a, long, a lot of time arguing not necessarily that measures of that sort are never justified, but that they are not just, maybe some of those measures are never justified, like imprisoning people without charges, but that a lot of the argument was about the nature and the magnitude of the threat, that the threat itself was being exaggerated because 3,000 people died horrible deaths, but in a country of, of 270 million people at the time, um, with the great difficulty of pulling something off like that again, it did seem like the cost-benefit analysis had gone way off track in favor of nothing but fear without any kind of calculation. Here, even though in the U.S., for example, we're nowhere near the peak of the pandemic, Far more people have already died from this virus than have died than died on 9/11. To say nothing of the death totals all around the world. So does that weigh into your calculation at all? The idea that if we don't take steps that we might uh, otherwise be very resistant to, the death total 
itself is going to completely dwarf 9-11, rendering that comparison a little bit uh, invalid. Well, no, we everyone looks at these things and considers emergency measures, right? It's natural and it's appropriate in the context of human experience uh, when you have for a short time and a short period a level of sacrifice that needs to be made uh, for the good of the individual, for the good of the community, for the good of society, right? Um, think about, you know, you're on a raft in the middle of the ocean, you don't drink all your water on the first day, even though you might be thirsty. Um, the thing that I have a problem with is that we see, for example, in the economic context of what we have going on right now, um, we have a history, at least in American society, but I think really global society when we look at the last half century, of repeatedly asking sacrifices of those who have the least capability to make those sacrifices. Um, everybody is freaking out about the economic crisis that has been provoked by the fact that we're all at home. We're all shut in. Uh, we're socially distancing. Uh, we're engaged in uh, trying to flatten the curve of infections, right? Just the, the logarithmic curve for those who aren't following around where the virus rates of infection keep doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling. Uh, we'll overload the hospitals, right? So we're trying to insert a breather uh, by sending everybody home, going, you're not going to see anybody, therefore you're not going to transmit everything, uh, and this will take the heat off the hospitals. And again, this can make sense. Uh, and I think it does make sense. Uh, the real problem that we're about to run into next is when they have to let everybody out, and then infection rate begins to rise again. And there was a study that just came out of, I think, the uh, Chan School of Public Health uh, from Harvard, uh, where they were saying this uh, system of pumping the brakes uh, or of intermittent quarantine, uh, where they send everyone home and then they let them out and then they send everyone home and let them out, uh, will actually continue uh, into next year. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we don't, that's in the best case, actually, where yeah. we're investing in so, hospitals. But, but, but Ed, let me, let, let, Ed, let me ask you about that, though, because that that's, I mean, that's a really momentous thing to say, right? That, okay, social distancing works, isolation works. It's something that's necessary not to protect each individual. So each individual can decide to take the risk because the reality is if you don't socially distance, if you go out on the street, you're endangering not only yourself, but you could overload the entire healthcare system, which prevents other people who need medical attention from getting it. So it's a collective and a societal interest as well. So you encourage social distancing and then a lot of people do it, but a lot of people don't. Does it then become justifiable to support powers of coercive quarantine? I mean, one of the most draconian powers you can vest in a government right. to bar people from leaving their own homes, arresting them if they do. Um, where do you fall on that spectrum of the kinds of measures, not that we ought to just encourage people voluntarily to follow, but that we ought to empower the state to compel and enforce? Well, I think this depends on your personal perspective and philosophy as to what the role of government is uh, and where those lines are drawn. For myself, um, I actually don't think uh, the government should have the mandatory authority to say, look, nobody goes out, you can't leave, you can't do this, that, or the other. Um, but that's also for the point, a part of the reason that I feel that way is that I don't believe it's actually necessary. I believe if the government makes recommendations uh, and we have the kind of public education that's uh, of a quality that can convince people and persuade them rationally that they should limit the amount of time that they spend outside, that they spend in crowds, you know, that they're uh, in basically um, 
zones of potential infection and transmission, uh, they will make the right decisions themselves. Uh, this actually gets into the contact tracing thing that we talked about as well. Is it better uh, for the government just to, you know, break out the jackboots and the uh, batons and go, look, nobody's out of their house, uh, or it's off to the paddy wagon? Uh, alternately, um, do you tell people, look, uh, this is dangerous to you, it's dangerous to your family, uh, this is a global pandemic, uh, you can reduce the risk to yourself, your community, if you follow uh, this kind of recommendation. And here's why we make these recommendations. Here's the basis for it. Here are the facts. Here's the best of our evidence and our science. I think most people will go along with it. This is similar to the idea of contact tracing. Now, currently, um, uh, again, for those listening that have been living under a rock and haven't heard of contact tracing, uh, this is where there is an infection uh, that has come into the hospital. They've tested positive, and then the doctors try to reverse engineer uh, where this person was to try to notify uh, other people who could potentially have been infected by this person and to try to basically crack down on the uh, contagion risk. Now, contact tracing really doesn't work when you're talking about the 10,000 people that are infected, 100,000 people that are infected, but it could work really well when you only have an infected population of 10 people, maybe 100 people, and they're, they're spread over the world. Um, so governments, to try to get ahead of the contact tracing thing, have just gone, well, why don't we go to the mobile companies, why don't we go to the internet companies, the advertising companies that are tracking everybody's location. Uh, the phone companies have your location, whether or not you gave an app location permissions on your phone, because your phone has to be connected to the nearest cell phone tower mm -hmm. in order to function, for you to make calls, for you to send internet data, for you to get notifications, any of that, right? Um, the phone company knows where you are at all times. Uh, the only way you can stop that is your phone is off uh, or the antenna is not hot because it's in airplane mode. Or, or, or you don't whatever. carry a phone with you. Or you don't carry a phone with you, right? Right. Um, but for most people, that's not an option. They need it to, to work. They need it to be in contact with their family. They need it to pay bills. They need it for all of these other things. But, yes, for most people that are walking around, they have this, and it's constantly tracking mm -hmm. them. If you do have location permissions on or you are connected to the local cafe Wi-Fi or you have Bluetooth on because it connects to your headset or something like that, uh, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, GPS, uh, all of these things uh, can be used as proxies for location information. And these can be provided to those apps uh, <laughs> secretly in many cases uh, due to intel in intentional weaknesses in sort of the privacy settings and the way the mobile operating systems are designed, uh, or you agree to this once and then it's just constantly a background app is not even open uh, as far as you can tell, but it's constantly sending updates to Facebook or to Google saying this is where that person is. And this, by the way, is how Google gets all those nice traffic maps, right, that tells you where the congestion is on the roadways. Uh, they're monitoring everybody's phone so they know how many people are on this roadway at this time. Well, governments are starting to go, well, why don't we help ourselves to that? Um, in some countries, it's a little bit harder. Interestingly, in the United States, uh, we're doing a little bit better here than other countries like, of course, China and Russia, but also Israel. Uh, we've seen this begin to happen in the United Kingdom, in France, uh, in Northern Europe. Um, and of course, so, so, let, so let me let me let me, let me let me let me let's stop there for a second because I want to do something that I in my a million years never thought that I was going to do, which is make a pro surveillance case 
not necessarily because I believe in this case, but because I think that it's far more plausible than it was, say, three months ago. Um, and I'm interested in your thoughts on it. So we've seen in the first three months of this pandemic or so, starting in December in Wuhan, um, a wide a wide array of, of responses from different countries. So on the one hand, you have what would you could say is like the most repressive uh, means of, of dealing with the pandemic, which is what we saw in China and probably Singapore, which are authoritarian countries to begin with that used a lot of brute force of literally dragging people out of their homes um, when there were fevers detected or other indicia of the virus and, and forcibly quarantining them in essentially prison hospitals. Then you have kind of on the other spectrum Western democracies where individual liberty is is more valued, where people are much more defiant of even suggestive government uh, messaging, let alone compulsory ones like in, in, in Western Europe, where the virus has really ravaged places like Spain and, and Italy and is now doing the same in, in the UK and, and France. And so the kind of middle ground model that a lot of people have held up as a country that avoided the harshest repression of China, but handled it much better than Western Europe is South Korea, which relied heavily on the kind of electronic surveillance that you and I spent a lot of years um, advocating against in order to do things like contact tracing and find where people who had the virus interacted with other people in order to then remove them from the population or quarantine them or reward them. And although it's unclear how every country is doing because these official counts are not very reliable, it does seem clear that South Korea did a better job than most countries, if not all countries, in managing the initial outbreak by using electronic surveillance. Does that make you, Edward Snowden, more receptive to the idea that perhaps we ought to allow states governments a little bit more leeway a little bit more authority on a on a temporary basis if that such a thing exists <laughs> to use that kind of surveillance data with the noble goal of trying to get this pandemic under control without having to use more repressive measures like we saw in Singapore and China <laughs> nice try i would say look there's there's a lot of uh presumption in the the sort of uh, example in the question there one of them is that South Korea relied heavily on this. Um, it is true that they did uh, sort of embrace quickly these kind of location tracking measures. It is not clear how much it helped. Um, it is actually, uh, it could be argued that South Korea's case is exceptional for a number of ways, one of which uh, the largest spread came from a very specific uh, region because it was a religious community that was very tightly knit uh, and it was spreading through them. They were in a local region and then you can look at that uh, there is also the um, distinction between Asian cultures, the in-group versus out-group importance. Uh, South Korea is a very uh, unusual example of a um, South Korea is a uh, very unusual example of a society in which an understanding of group operations and uh, government operations uh, sort of authority and a command structure uh, is ingrained um, in the very structure of the state itself. For example, Samsung is something like 20% of the entire country's gross domestic product. Um, so what you see when you look at like a Japan or a South Korea are countries that already have a culture of whenever someone gets a cold, they put a flu mask on. 
Um, mm-hmm. I lived in Japan. I saw this, right? And that's without a pandemic. Uh, they also remember the SARS pandemic, and they made preparations in response to it. Uh, so I would say, actually, uh, what you saw was South Korea doing an across-the-board push to grasp at any capabilities that they had, applying them with the uh, to the maximum extent that they could, um, and that this is crucial. The public listened to expert recommendations that were coming from health authorities. Uh, they made some voluntary uh, individual, uh, took voluntary individual actions like mask wearing, uh, hand sanitizing, things like that, uh, that could limit uh, the transmissibility and infectiousness of it. Um, and what we see is that collective voluntary action um, can be very effective. And one of the crucial things here um, is that uh, in a high-information, advanced uh, economy uh, like a Japan, um, which unfortunately has political problems, so they've been downplaying the uh, importance of this virus early on, and that's going to bite them later, um, but you look at, uh, in these kind of examples, uh, people really can flatten that curve in a way that's effective. Now, when we look at the counterexample that you have here uh, of an authoritarian society of China, Uh, We go, well, what if uh, South Korea took a Chinese example here? Would they have been more effective uh, in halting the spread of the virus uh, if they had just welded people into their homes, right? If they had chained people's doors, uh, turned off the elevators, you know, blocked the stairways, set up cameras outside the homes, you know, said people can't leave without a special pass from the government, Uh, all of these things, it's not clear uh, that that would have been more effective. And in fact, I think there's a very strong argument uh, that it actually would have been worse. When you look at the example of China, we need to understand that given the the Chinese Communist Party and their, uh, shall we say, tenuous relationship uh, with factual reporting, um, it is very possible that the response to the pandemic uh, and the manner in which it was taken in China Uh, caused more harm uh, than what would have happened in a South Korean-style response. Uh, We have direct documented cases where they chained the doors to people's house, they wouldn't allow them to go home from the hospital, and they had dependents at home, uh, children with disabilities and things like that, who literally starved to death uh, in the absence of their caretakers. Uh, and when you think about this on the scale of the whole of a country, the, the human cost is tremendous. And that's to say nothing uh, of economic harm and despair, uh, people who turn to suicide and hopelessness, uh, relationships that are lost, people who don't have access to foods, um, and simply quality of life. Uh, the costs of these responses can be tremendous. Uh, and it's not clear um, that the efficacy of the sacrifices that are being asked for Uh, or uh, that are being forced upon us involuntarily uh, are actually resulting in concrete uh, benefits. Now, putting all that on the table, uh, acknowledging that, is there a case where some surveillance can be useful? Uh, Obviously, yes. I mean, look, I I signed up to work for the CIA and the NSA. I know surveillance can be effective. And 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 just to remind people, one of the arguments both you and I made during the height of the controversy triggered by your whistleblowing was not that the case that was being made that that caused you to come forward was an wholesale opposition to surveillance. Quite the contrary, you were in favor of 
targeted surveillance with safeguards against people for whom a court had decided there was evidence that they were engaged in terrorist acts or other dangerous acts, right? You're not against um, search warrants or wiretaps approved by a court. What you were opposed to was mass surveillance abused without any constraints or safeguards. So that kind of leads me into that question brought into this context, which is, and, and you were getting to this, and I, I just want to remind people of what your prior posture was and mine um, to apply it here, which is, is there a framework of targeted, limited, controlled, responsible surveillance that you could get behind if done with the proper motives and under the right uh, conditions with the right safeguards? Yeah, I, I think what people are um, presuming here, and this was the presumption of the question put to me forward, uh, put to me before, uh, is the idea that this is a choice between mass surveillance uh, or uh, just a completely uncontrolled spread of an infectious uh, virus that can cause serious disease. Um, and I don't think that's accurate. In fact, I know that's accurate. I'm, a, you know, I, I know a little something about how surveillance works here. What we are being asked uh, is to accept uh, involuntary mass surveillance uh, in a way that has never been done before at this scale um, in the context of a, of a real crisis. They go, look, uh, we're just going to do this. The data already exists at phone companies. We're going to apply it to uh, sort of a new use case. We're going to take this uh, surveillance infrastructure that exists, but or rather we're going to take this um, communications infrastructure that was not designed for surveillance, or rather it's told to us that it would not be used or abused for surveillance, and we're going to use it for precisely that, but for a really good reason. Now, um, they say that this is necessary. They say that there is no alternative. They say that if you want to save lives, you have to do this, but that's not true. Um, again, the question here is between the involuntary surveillance of everyone uh, that has been carrying a phone uh, over you know, the, the last however many weeks or months or years that they want to look back to. Because remember, these records of your movements of your phone, uh, at least by AT&T in the United States, are reported to go back to 2008. Everywhere your phone has traveled since 2008, they know. Uh, and then there's no laws regulating how long they can retain this information. Uh, in large part in the United States. Um, now, uh, imagine an alternative. Uh, you go to the hospital. Uh, you are diagnosed um, with an uh, infection. And the doctor goes, uh, it would be really helpful uh, for you to be able to voluntarily share the movements of your phone. You open the app uh, that when the pandemic came out, you installed. Uh, because it's just one of these recommendations that the, the government puts out, um, that the CDC or whatever uh, the infectious disease authority is in, in your region. Um, and what it did is it just turned on Bluetooth uh, that, you know, most people have on their phones anyway. Um, and what it does is it listens for other phones that are running the same app, and it gives out what's called a pairwise identifier. This means it's not sending a universal broadcast that says, this is my name, this is my phone number, whatever. It literally makes up a name, uh, like a fake name, like Bob or Alice, if your name is not Bob or Alice, uh, and gives this to every phone that it passes. A different phone gets a different name. 
But we use uh, cryptography. Uh, we use basically um, ways of proving your identity such that when you go to the doctor and the doctor goes, you are confirmed to have an infection, you can upload your list of all these fake names that you were given uh, that, again, your phone is constantly changing, so you never give the same fake name to another phone twice, so you can't be tracked by this. Um, and then you upload it online. And it goes, oh, man, uh, everybody else who has this app installed downloads this list, which doesn't incriminate them because everybody gets the same sort of master list, uh, that goes, I passed that phone that was an infected person, or I was sitting on the bus next to this person, or, oh, when I was on the tram, I was, you know, with that person. Uh, or I've stuck on a plane with this person. And all of this can be done in a voluntary privacy-preserving way. Now, you might go, well, why would I share this information if it doesn't benefit me directly? Well, it does. Right. Well, I guess my question was, would you personally put that up on your phone and then voluntarily share that data with government authorities if you turned out to have a positive test for coronavirus and were requested to turn that information over? So... If the code of the application is open, anybody can see it. It's not malicious. It's not spying on people because countries have done this before. Uh, Iran put out an app that they said was going to help you diagnose your family before they went to the hospital. And in reality, it was ransacking your contacts list and all your data, your location information. Uh, and they started monitoring the whole country on this basis. But if, again, this is done in uh, the proper responsible way, anybody can see this. You know what it's doing. Cards are on the table. You know, it's not a shady thing. Um, and as privacy protecting, I absolutely would because it does not harm me in any way. I can't be tracked on the basis of this uh, in any granular way. They don't know that it's me, except the doctor who already knows that I was infected. I how do they find the people, and, if everything's uh, an anonymous, how do they find the people with whom you're on the bus, with whom you're on the plane, with whom you are in close quarters? That's, that's the beauty of the system, right? What you do is you incentivize people who are infected to share their movements on a master list, or it's actually not even their movements, it's just a list of all the phones that they passed. Um, and then the people who have those phones, when they go and download this master registry of basically all the phones that these infected people have passed, uh, they would see, oh, I'm on the list, or they open their app in the morning, and they say, I didn't pass anybody, so I'm not at risk. And again, this whole thing here is, you have two ways of shaping human behavior um, if you are a government uh, you can either disincentivize behaviors you don't like you know you can tell everybody you, you can't go outside or it's off to the paddy wagon with you uh, or you can incentivize pro-social behaviors in a voluntary way for example in the united states it has been extremely difficult uh, to get tested uh, for covid 19 um, because of shortages or whatever, overburdened healthcare systems, the fact that we don't have a functioning healthcare system in the United States. Uh, now, if you have a system like this and the doctor goes, one of these people who goes in and gets one of these rare tests, uh, goes, oh, you actually are infected, upload this to the list. Anybody who has then one of the phones who is sitting next to you on the bus, who is sitting next to you on the plane, obviously becomes a priority, a documented, clear priority for health authorities to let them in. So you go in with your app, you show them, oh, hey, I was sitting next to a guy who, I don't know who they are, but you just said they were infected. Uh, you now get priority access to this kind of testing. You can get priority access to treatment because it is clear that you have potentially been exposed. And none of this requires privacy sacrifices. None of this requires 
requires any sort of uh, involuntary or intrusive uh, violation of rights. Uh, and the funny thing is, these capabilities are not difficult to create. This platform, you know, could have been slapped together in four uh, days by a bunch of university researchers working together if they had had the kind of funding and the mandate and the support. So uh, let me let me let, let me ask because I think this I, I think um, and and this leads to to what I had intended to be the last question, which is a lot of your answers are predicated on the desirability not of government coercion but of voluntary conduct that is not only in the individual's enlightened self-interest but in the interest as well of society which in turn means that there's a flow of information that's accurate and reliable and trustworthy that people put their faith and confidence in as kind of a reliable font of authority for them to to form their understanding about how the pandemic functions. And maybe, not sure, but I suspect it's the case, that there are countries in which there is faith in some kind of centralized authority, whether it's scientists or the government or media outlets that they trust, to get this information, and it can be effective. But in other countries, certainly in the U.S., and it's true in here in Brazil, and it's definitely true throughout Western Europe, there's a, a collapse of tra trust in uh, these institutions of authority where people aren't sure anymore what to believe. And so, for example, here in Brazil, one of the things we have is on the one hand, you have a lot of scientists, you have the big media outlets um, disseminating what is the scientific consensus throughout the West and in Asia about how the pandemic functions, about the need for social distancing and isolation, about the threat and lethality of this virus. But then on the other hand, you have a lot of power centers, including the president of the country, his family, his media outlets, his followers, evangelical pastors saying entirely inaccurate things, just scientifically <laughs> false claims about there's no need to socially isolate. There's no need to socially distance. The threat of the ec economic harm is much greater than the threat of this virus. It only kills people above 70 if you're already sick. And what has happened is companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google that control our discourse online have started censoring and deleting messages from the president of Brazil, high-level officials. The same thing happened in Venezuela on the ground that they're disseminating information that is contrary to the scientific consensus. So on the one hand, your solutions of voluntary conduct need and depend upon the citizenry being persuaded about basic scientific facts and what's in their own interest, which in turn means that they can't be misled or deceived into doing things that are irrational. On the other hand, there are dangers, I think, to having companies like Facebook and Google and Twitter control our discourse to the point of even censoring the messaging that comes from democratically elected leaders as unhinged and extremist and authoritarian as they might be. So if your solution, your vision for how this can best be calibrated relies on an informed citizenry, does that make you more amenable to having these tech companies exert a little bit more control while we're in this crisis over people's ability to deceive people with misinformation or even falsehoods and lies so you you just really uh, broadened the conversation so i've got to say unfortunately uh that's not going to be the last question i'm going to have to ask you questions or something because this is going to take some back and forth but uh when we when you ask this question look uh, you know am i comfortable with facebook and uh you know google 
YouTube, uh, whoever. It's like four properties that basically run the world today. Uh, Jeff Bezos decides what you can and can't buy on Amazon. You know, Facebook decides what you can and can't post on social media. You know, Jack Dorsey or whatever gets dragged into this and it has to be the politics police. Um, is that correct because some people abuse their authority? And, and no, I, I don't think the solution to the abuse of authority is to create more platforms for the abuse of authority. I, I don't believe uh, making... Um, Mark Zuckerberg, the central authority for the things that can and cannot be said, is an improvement on the situation. Uh, what we are seeing in exactly the situation that you described with Bolsonaro, with Donald Trump, with all of these people uh, denying basic facts uh, is intentional. It's not a mistake. It is a sustained campaign that's been running for uh, more than a decade now um, to reduce trust uh, in some of the most important uh, institutions, when we're talking about expert understanding of complex, nuanced subjects, because the facts are not in their favor. Uh, this is a political struggle uh, for influence. And when the facts are against them, we go, well, why don't we undermine the facts? This is centrally, in my mind, uh, an abuse of authority. Uh, it is their platform, their trust from their voters, uh, who believe that they will do uh, what's best for these voters, uh, and they go and use it for, you know, callous and self-interested uh, political ends uh, to improve their own lot in the next election, right? But I think what we are seeing as a result of this uh, is we are seeing more harm from the abuse of authority uh, than we are suffering from a lack of authority. Uh, the government today, in basically any country you point to, is more powerful than it has ever been in any moment in human history. And all of these institutions, all of these different political parties in all of these different cultures, all of these different languages are now coming to their people simultaneously around the world going, well, the problem, see, is we don't have enough power. And that's not persuasive to me. Um, and I think what we see right now, in, in fact, uh, is that this is the turning of an age. Uh, this pandemic, I believe, uh, which is a serious problem, don't uh, mistake me, is downplaying the severity of this. Um, what we are seeing is it is revealing structural flaws, uh, not just in our, our system of government, but in the system broadly, you know, capitalized proper noun here. Uh, there is an idea that governments, you know, going back hundreds of years, uh, exist only for certain reasons. The government is there to provide a basic level of security. Um, you know, this, this idea of uh, a sense of order, uh, economic well-being, right? Uh, it is providing for individuals, for people that they cannot provide for themselves. Uh, and what we are seeing in places like the United States and around the world uh, is, in fact, these are the very governments that have unbalanced the system economically, uh, that have engaged in the kind of uh, aggressive wars, endless wars under the Bush and Cheney administration, that then were underwritten by the Obama administration, now adopted by the Trump administration, uh, wars without end, uh, sort of taking a, a pet crime like terrorism, which is a serious crime, but it is still a crime nonetheless, and now making it a matter of state, right? We are elevating criminals to the, the levels of equal sovereigns, right? ISIS is being treated like it's a nation as opposed to a very large organized crime syndicate. Um, and when you look at the fact that there, uh, 
not maintaining a sense of order. Uh, in fact, uh, our countries are becoming more fractious and divided. Uh, they're not providing the security that we're being asked for. They're not being uh, good stewards of the public's health, the public's economy, or crucially, the public's rights, which I think is really what we should be saying. People have trouble with guaranteeing themselves at scale, right? Justice. Can you say the governments today are doing a good job ensuring uh, sort of uniform access to justice? Uh, you wrote an entire book on uh, the United States uh, or, or about the U.S. justice system's unequal access to justice. I think it was called uh, Liberty and Justice for Some. That's a free plug for the audience there. Um, <laughs> you know, we won't be the, editing the, that part out. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the idea here is when, when you look at these things broadly, uh, and you look at all of these governments panicking, uh, what has begun now is a race between governments to entrench their power, to re-entrench the system that has failed us and is continuing to fail us, and that in a very real way for people who are dependent upon it economically and now medically, uh, it has betrayed us. And a race has begun um, between all of the crises that this system has produced uh, that are now working to persuade people that maybe the system needs to be replaced uh, and the people who are benefiting from those systems um, to hold it in place. And I think this is the unanswered question of where this is going to go, but the story of the next 100 years uh, or more is going to be, uh, has the system that has served us to um, this point, uh, is it under our control uh, politically, publicly, ideologically? Is it serving our needs? Uh, and is the problem simply that it doesn't have enough power? We need to move closer to sort of this Chinese model of unlimited authoritarian demands uh, in response to emergent crises, uh, or do we need to actually look for something that's uh, got a little less um, authority that is available for abuse. Yeah, you know, I think that um, the most important point that comes out of all of this, not just this discussion that you and I just had, but also, but the, the, the broader discussion that we're having collectively is the one that you kind of began by raising, which is that I think the lesson we ought to have learned, one of the lessons we ought to have learned, maybe the principal one, after 9-11, is that there is this period of, of genuine fear that is probably rational that a cataclysmic or extraordinary event happens like two jet planes flying into huge buildings in the most powerful country in the world and knocking them to the ground or a global pandemic that seems incapable of being controlled generates a rational fear. And if you don't work to prevent it, that fear can overwhelm irrational faculties, making you highly susceptible to unreasoned solutions and that at the very least we have to create the space for each other where it's not stigmatized to ask questions about whether proposed solutions in the name of safety or security or health or saving lives um, either are excessive or are worse than the problem they're being proposed to solve. And, and I definitely think there has been uh, a couple of months now of a climate similar to the post 9-11 climate that was so toxic and ultimately so harmful, where these this questioning, the this debate, this kind of thinking about weighing cost and benefits became stigmatized. And I think we're definitely at the point 
where we need to give up the illusion that there's such a thing as temporarily vesting authorities in governments because we've seen from <laughs> yeah. things like the Patriot Act that that doesn't exist, that whatever powers you give to the government in the name of this pandemic are likely to endure long after it's under control. Um, and that also uh, there are competing values to just the immediate desire to be protected by a danger in the world. Yeah, I mean... When we look at this moment, um, to me, it is <laughs> like watching that TV in the background of a disaster movie that nobody pays attention to. Um, everybody can feel uh, the rise of authoritarianism that is creeping around the world, whether you are in Brazil, uh, whether you are in Hungary, whether you are in Russia, whether you are in Washington, right? Um, everywhere we see uh, politicians seeking new powers and trying to apply them uh, to really slay their enemies um, in, in the political context for now, but uh, we forget how quickly in the context of history that can move to a more literary, um, or forgive me, um, we forget in the context of history how quickly that can move to a uh, literal application of the term. Crises are always exploited by political actors to gain authorities that would otherwise be forbidden to them. And we can understand, as people who are impacted by these policies, that there can be benefits. Um, but at the point these policies are being sought, these benefits are theoretical. Often there is no evidence for them, and they may never materialize. But the consequences uh, of granting these authorities are inevitable. There has never been uh, a moment in history where he, we have created what is being stood up today, a system where a government, any government, uh, can know the location of every person at every time. Uh, this is the architecture of oppression. They're saying they're not turning it on. They're saying they're not using it for, you know, marching people off to camps. And right now, I believe them. But do you want a government that at any moment can round up people of any political persuasion, of people who clicked on this link, of people who are at this place at that time. At, you know, even if they say it's anonymous data, right? We don't know these people. We're just looking at the movements uh, of the population broadly, not on an individual scale. We want to see who's breaking quarantine. And they go, well, look, there's 30 people congregating in a park who shouldn't be there. Maybe it's a religious group. Maybe it's a political group. And you know what? That capability will exist in three months, in three years, and in 30 years if we allow it to be implemented today. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's the key point. And exactly for that reason, um, you know, I think a lot of us have had a good few weeks of just kind of first thinking about our own health and our own safety and that of our families kind of trying to get a hold on on what this pandemic is and, and what the basic scientific facts of it are and the political facts of it are. And now it's definitely time to start questioning in a serious way everything that's being proposed in the name of curbing it, of limiting it, and stopping it. And um, that, more than anything, is the reason why I wanted to talk to you because I knew you, you would be one of the ideal people um, to start raising these questions in a, in a rational and compelling way. So I'm super glad that we got to take some time in and talk about this. And I have a feeling that um, it's going to take more than just one conversation to, to <laughs> sound the alarm about the need to be vigilant 
that your rational fears aren't exploited for ends other than what um, people are claiming they're being exploited for. Um, yeah, I, I just for anybody out there who's listening right now who's struggling because this has been uh, not a good few weeks. This has been a very difficult few weeks for for everyone really everywhere. Um, it's not wrong. It's not weird uh, to be scared. Um, I have family members who have lost their jobs. Um, I think everybody has. Uh, we are in a vulnerable position, and we are being made to depend on a system uh, that we do not really understand and do not have that much control over these days. And I want people to think about the fact that this is an election year, and we need to do everything we can to make sure that this crisis is not going to be exploited to change that, to delay uh, elections, to try to uh, change the things that we're thinking about. Because it gets back to this moment of, in a crisis, we are asked for sacrifices. There's a limited amount of resources, and we're being said they have to be applied in this way. They go to these people, not these people. Um, and there are not many moments in history where everybody in a country, everybody in the world, is sent to, you know, go to their room without supper and just sit there and think until you can come out a few weeks later. Uh, that is vanishing the rare. And it is extraordinary that this is happening at the same moment that we have a political opportunity to change this system. Uh, ask yourself why, for decades, uh, you have been asked to give more and more. And when a moment of crisis comes and Congress starts throwing money around, um, we are getting the smallest portion uh, of the resources. <laughs> Instead, it's going off to banks and airlines and commercial lending paper and finance and none of this stuff anybody but the Congress people who are benefiting from it understand. Uh, and then think about now the only thing that we have left, our rights, our ideals, our values as people, that's what they're coming for now. That's what they're asking us to give up. That's what they're asking to change. And remember that from a perspective of a free society, you know, a virus is a serious problem. It is harmful. But the destruction of our rights is fatal. That's permanent. Yeah. And uh, it's it takes work to think about the second, um, whereas our survival instincts very easily let us think about the first. And, and that's where the imbalance uh, can can arise. Ed, thank you so much uh, for this discussion. I think it was extremely illuminating. I think it was the right moment to have it. Um, and I really appreciate your taking the time to, to talk. Thank you. Stay free.